Anyways, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> welcome back to the Gustav Baller Show. Um, this is our third episode. Erstwhile, a show about music, now a show about The Expanse, both the book series and the TV show. Um, Nick is in book five, I'm in book four. I'm in, I think I just finished season three, I can't really remember though, of the of the show. Where are you in the show, Nick? Um, I'm all caught up with the show, and yeah, I just finished Nemesis Games, so good. Oh, you finished it? Yeah. Oh, shit, okay. It's so good. I gotta get my act together. Um, yeah, yeah, we're rebranding. It's no longer the Gustav Baller show. It's now the James Holden show. <laughs> it's not really a pun, but no, that's okay. No, okay, just kidding. Today, um, today we're talking about um, minimalism and some minimalist composers. Mm. Um, there's like a no. You know about basketball? Yeah, a little bit. Does does the big three mean anything to you? No. Actually, it doesn't mean much to me either. <laughs> I can't remember it. <laughs> I remember. The, Wait, I remember. Uh, is it? You know the Chicago Bulls. You know. All right. Well, I think it's the basketball. <laughs> big three may or may not be a basketball thing. Oh, is it a World War Two thing? Okay, no. The big three in basketball were LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh when they played on the Miami Heat. Oh, uh, okay. Is there a big three in minimalism? Um, I'm going to say, I don't know. I think, I, I think the, the style is so broad that it's hard to, it might be hard to like, to pick I don't know. It's, it, I think it depends on what area of minimalism, you know, is it more, are we talking more like, a, you know, acoustic concert music or it like more toward the electric music side? Um, okay. But I like that take a lot, but I was assuming the answer was yes. And that it was um, <laughs> glass, rice and atoms. But uh, so I really appreciate where you're coming from there. Cause you're kind of right. And that's so, well, we were hoping this next episode was going to be about um, race and politics, and we were going to talk to my friend Milan and um, another one of her friends who's also a singer, and about what it's like being people of color in classical music, and talk about some um, uh, like shamefully unknown black composers. Like, but we're for whatever reason we're doing this one first, and. Um, it, that that topic still kind of applies because like when people think about minimalism and minimalist music like or maybe it's maybe it's just me because obviously you just gave a different answer but that it's like generally associated with like philip glass steve reich john adams three white guys and when nick when you and i were doing research for this show and we searched minimalist composers on google like how all good research starts um <laughs> all of the composers that they show were white men or white women and then the first black composer julius eastman they didn't show a picture of him they just had like a standard like avatar um oh my god picture yeah um so today we're going to talk a little bit about 
like it's kind of hard to discuss minimalism without those those three guys um but we're also going to talk about some some other composers who like deservedly uh deservedly deserve um rightfully deserve like yeah more attention and their work deserves to be performed and they're like unfairly neglected yeah I yeah I also wanted to like let our listeners know that we're on our second martini. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, well okay oh yeah that's a good and, point. Uh, and uh, yeah, mine mine's pretty good. I've been eyeballing a driver Moth and Tangeray. What about you, Max? Well, the first one we were, we did martinis. Why why did we do martinis? Nick and I. <laughs> have now known each other longer than we've not known each other, which in one way is cool. In another way, it means depressing. We're, we're just getting pretty old. Yeah. It's a little depressing. Um, and we used to have to, um, catalog our antics by what we called, um, incidents. Um, so like there was once a martini incident where we, j- we just drank too many martinis, but, and so, huh? but, but, it was, but it, we made it. <laughs> yeah, we lived. No, but it was it was fun because we didn't at the time we didn't have a a shaker to shake the drinks up, so we used Tupperware that we had in the kitchen. Yeah, and we measured using measuring cups. Yeah, <laughs> those they were horse sized martinis. I just remember like the third one walking into the kitchen and seeing Nick making it, and he like he thought he was making it in secret. And when I walked in, he got this deer in the headlights look <laughs> that he knew he was in trouble because he shouldn't be drinking anymore. And then he drank it all in one sip. Um, so I started also with a gin martini. Um, I did Beef Eater and Dolan. And sometimes I don't think, I, like, I love making bourbon cocktails and rye cocktails. And I feel like I understand them and what they're supposed to taste like. But I don't have much of a, like a palate for gin. And it's actually Nick's fault because when we were freshmen in college... He fucking gave me um, Gordon's gin and told me that the um, the worse a gin tastes, the better it is. And I had, didn't have any alcohol ever before college, so what the fuck did I know? I, I believed every word that came out of Nick's mouth. So I, I still don't know shit about gin. All I remember is that when I went home for winter break or Thanksgiving, I was like, oh, dad, Nick and I have been drinking pretty good gin all semester. It's called Gordon's. He was like, that shit's terrible. Try this. And then he gave me like Bombay Sapphire. I was like, oh, that fucker, Nick. Yeah. Uh. Um, and then after that, I have this cocktail book that argues there's only five different kinds of cocktails. And so um, like a Manhattan is essentially a version of a martini. My second drink was a Manhattan um, variation called the Little Italy, which was rye, sweet vermouth, and chinar, which is a really tasty um artichoke liqueur yeah so why the martini how 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 do we end up pairing it with minimalism um or is there not really a reason for that is it just kind of well the martini incident was maybe the most we ever drank so that's like sort of maximal oh okay oh yeah oh that's right okay so we were going the other way with it (laughs) we were leaning into it the other way (laughs) yeah but now i had two fancy drinks and that's enough for one night so now i'm just having a miller high life (laughs) (laughs) okay all right that's good 
Oh wow. All right. Um, um, is there anything? Is there any other news? Anything else we need to address before we get started? Um, I don't know. I'm gonna, I feel great right now. Me too. Had a shit day at work. Fuck. What do you? My manager left what, with my car keys. What, what do you? What do you do? Uh, just for the listeners, I know what you do. Oh, I work at a. Well, the the listeners know too because they're all <laughs> friends and family. <laughs> I work at a bookstore. Today I did absolutely no work. So I, I kind of phoned it in all day. Cool. Um, okay. You know, when you listen to podcasts, like I listen to Pod Save America and I pretty much like it, but I'm like always like, oh, there's so much fucking preamble and I always have to fast forward to like three minutes. Yeah. And here we are, here we are at nine minutes and 20 seconds of preamble, so. <laughs> uh, okay. Have, yeah, okay. So have we, have we talked about minimalism? What is minimalism? How would we define it for our listeners? And, you know, like, what are some things that we should listen for when we're listening to minimalism? Yeah, so it's kind of, I think it's kind of like a, a misnomer a little bit. Okay. The same way where, like, we call Debussy's music impressionism and... That makes us think it's like a little bit washy and unclear, but actually WC is like really clear about everything he notates and stuff. Yeah. And so there's this book um, by Robert Fink called Repeating Ourselves, something about American mass market culture and minimalist music or something like that. And he makes the argument that what we call minimalist music is actually music that's maximally repetitive. Um, So it's not that it's, because if 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 it were music that was minimal in terms of its um, like material, then we would call like Webern or something a minimalist, right? right? And I don't think, I don't think, I mean, maybe that argument could be made, but I'm I'm not sure. What how would how do you define it? Well, I guess I I, I think of minimalism, and I think of like um, like you said, repetition, definitely, but also drones. Um, Mm-hmm. like phasing is another technique that com- minimalist composers use. Um, What's phasing? Phasing is when you have like two or when you, when you have like a theme um, and one is shifting one way, the other is shifting the other way. Um, let me think if I can describe it. Like piano. Oh no, that's, that's good. Phasing. So like in pia- in piano phase by Reich, there's like one pattern of however many 16th notes and they it one voice shifts so that like the second note lines up with the first yeah in the other part and then the third note lines up and then the fourth note lines up yeah it's like i mean and like you said it's kind of maximalist in that it's exhausting every possible option this this melody could work on top of each other in a sense right clapping music is the same way um where you have that one rhythm but it just every repetition is an offset by an eighth note um so I think of phasing because that's a technique Steve Reich uses a lot, and I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure John Adams has used it too, right? Um, probably, probably like I don't, I don't know if it's as like explicit in John Adams. Like, there's probably a general idea mm-hmm. of of phasing and shifting, but you're right about Reich like being like maximalistic about it, like or in like encyclopedic 
right? Where like every option is exhausted. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I really like about it. Maybe we should just start with, with, with Steve Reich. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, I think he's a good place to start for sure. Um, so he, he was born in 1936. Um, he's still alive. That's, that's the other thing. Like it's, I always think of, I, I think of minimalism as still as like new music, but this shit is old. This shit is old. It's it, yeah, it really is. Um, it's like a, like a sixties and, and seventies and on sort of thing. Yep. Um, Anyways, okay, Steve Reich. <clears throat> sorry. Oh, sorry. So, Steve Reich. <laughs> so. Steve Reich. <laughs> Probably the first time, um, you mentioned a piece called Clapping Music, and um, for our listeners, Clapping Music is a piece that's just um, clapping. You can play it with as few as two people or as many people as you want. And what it is, it's this rhythm. And one voice repeats that over and over and over again. And the other voice, like Nick said, shifts like one eighth note to the left or something like that. So they line up in, in, in interesting ways. And that's, that's phasing and... Um, I think he discovered... Didn't he discover that like... Or he he got the idea from that from like tape music in the studio, like two tapes playing out of sync with each other. Um, I think actually no, I I I remember seeing a story somewhere about how he was. That might have been for another piece that he uses this same phasing technique, but I think he saw it. I think he saw a um sorry, the I think he saw um like a flamenco music ensemble when he was on tour with his band one time, like in Europe in the seventies. And I'm pretty sure he was like, like listening to the rhythms in the flamenco like piece and like had this idea for this rhythm. It might've been some oh, situation where like maybe the, the guitarists who were playing were oh. really, really bad. And he thought it was like, kind of like he was kind of like they were, they were so bad. They were like, so out of sync. It kind of like gave him an idea for this. Well, I think we're talking about two different things. I was talking about the idea for phasing. You're talking about the idea for the rhythm of clapping oh, music? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so... Because um, I think phasing... So one thing I really like about um, Steve Reich's music is that some of the earlier stuff is really political. Yeah. Like, um, there's a piece uh, called Come Out, um, which is audio of... Um, Oh, it's the the Harlem Sixth. Okay, hold on a sec. I'm gonna just read this off. Um, there's some some riot and. Okay, so Reich used the voice of Daniel Ham, one of the boys involved in the riots, but not responsible for what whatever murder the riots were about. He was 19 at the time of the recording. Um, he's. Daniel Ham is recorded saying, "I had to like open the bruise out, uh, open the bruise up, and let some of the bruised blood come out to show them." Um, and he was talking about his like being beaten by police in jail, uh-huh. and he was trying to, and so, like he takes that audio, and phases it in and out with itself. 
but like it forces you to like sit there and think about this this message the whole time there's like no break from it right right and then so there's that and then there's also the piece um different trains which so um reich is jewish and his parents are divorced and if i remember correctly like one lived in la and one lived in new york and he said some at some point like yeah i spent the my childhood like traveling back and forth across the country by train um and if i had lived in germany at the time it it would have been very different trains oh right so he has this piece called different trains for a string quartet and tape where like the string quartet plays and then you hear voices of people talking about being on trains to concentration camps in germany during the holocaust and people talking about trains in in um uh in the states but i appreciate that there's like um like a possibility for political critique or something yeah in, in his music that's the pieces like from chicago <laughs> sorry from chicago to new york yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's but then that's but really then like it's a really cool piece and what's so cool is that like you hear the voice say from chicago from Chicago to New York. Yeah. And then you hear the string go, or whatever. And you, like, or at least I immediately in my head translate that melody into words from Chicago to New York. And I think that that's, that's like a pretty interesting way to, like, incept a message into, into a listener's mind or something. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. Okay. So now, how is, how about like Philip Glass? Like, how is his music, con- like, how is it different from, Reich. What does he do that's like, does he have a different process for composition? I think that I would say that Reich is all about process Mm -hmm. and glass is more about like, I think when he wrote Glassworks in the early eighties, like he was literally trying to make music. You could put on your headphones and like walk around and listen to, he was trying to make headphone music. And so it's a little more like listener oriented or like, like reception oriented or something. But I think the other thing is that like Steve Reich's music is maximally repetitive in how things line up vertically, right? Like we talked about in piano phase or in like any of his phasing music, like the, the thing that gives the, um, like that creates the interest is how different things line up vertically. And glass is more interested in like longer horizontal, um repetitions like he'll have he'll have a phrase that's like eight bars which is mostly the same and then that repeats and then it goes to another phrase and then that repeats and then it goes back and repeats both of them or something like that there's like not much about process but more about like um like journey or something yeah i don't know what do you think no i i agree with that because like like when i yeah when i hear Philip Glass's music, I'm not necessarily thinking about how he wrote it. Like whenever I hear a Steve Reich right. piece, I want to be like, how the fuck did he write this? Like what did what process did he use? Like this is there I can tell there's some cool shit going on, like there's some mathematical shit. That doesn't happen necessarily for me when I listen to Glass. It's more about it's like um yeah, like you said like it's it's like a it's like a journey which I feel is more like for the listener. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Like I, 
I can put on. I'm not going to walk around or go on, on, in the car and like put on clapping music or something. I mean, I would right. I would put on different trains because that piece is sick. But some some of Reich's music, <laughs> <laughs> some of Reich's music, I ain't going to listen to in the car. It's like too cerebral or something. Like you have to be in the mood to listen to it. Yeah, and I I think that's like a big theme with minimalism is that it's super, it's super moody in that you you have you have to like be prepared for it. In fact, when I was when I was preparing for you know the sh- the show, um, <laughs> I either like I would put on something that I was like okay I should listen to this. I either loved it or I fucking hated it. I had like, I was just like, Oh my God, why would I ever oh, really? Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? Why would I want to listen to this right now? Like, I, or, what did you hate? Um, I, I don't know. Like one day I put on NC and I was like, I don't fucking care about this. Terry, oh, yeah, Terry yeah, Riley. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. no, on the other hand, another time I put it on and I was like, Oh, this is actually pretty chill. But <laughs> it's just, it depends on like the listen. It depends on my, my mood because I'm like, I, sometimes I'm, I'm ready for it. Meanwhile, there's other types of music and other styles where I can put it on and pretty much any time be like, okay, this is fucking sick. Like Thad Jones, Jimmy Smith, obviously that's a different thing. Yeah, That's yeah, a different yeah. conversation. But like minimalism is so polarizing for me where I either I'm like psyched about it and I want to hear it or I'm just like, fuck this. Like if you got something to say, just say it. Jesus Christ. I don't have all fucking day. <laughs> that's- yeah, I get that. There's something about it that like, so I can't listen to music really while I'm studying or while I'm reading, but I can listen to Philip Glass and like, and there's something like a little meditative about it, but I feel like it's a music that, um, like forces introspection somehow because there's not much happening at the level of the musical surface that you're like, okay, well, I guess I'll think about myself and my own thoughts and feelings or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, I don't want to like, like, like plug myself or anything, or, or advocate for myself as a minimalist. But you, know, I wrote that piano piece, um, Nocturne. Yeah. Which goes for ten hours overnight, yes. and it's just one chord the whole time. Okay, that's probably technically minimalism. It's also <laughs> fucking idiotic. Well, actually, no. But, I, um, I was going to ask you about your piano music, but go go ahead, go ahead. Say, okay, say what okay. you're going to say. Say what you're going to say. Um, the 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 mother of one of my piano students at the time an awesome amazing woman she came and she asked my friend paula like after 20 minutes or so of the same chord she was like does it go on for much longer like this and paula was like yeah it goes on the whole night like this that's it and then she left Oh my god! But it's, when she came, so when she came to her, when she came, it was awesome. When she came to the next student's lesson, she was like, um, "I had to leave because I was thinking too much. It's okay for young people to think, but when you're my age, too much thinking is a bad thing." And I think that that like woke something up in me about minimalism, where like it's like a, or at least, oh fuck gotta fucking figure out how to structure shit better there's like a cognitive athleticism happening and it's like a young man's sport you know (laughs) (laughs) okay that's a sport i never played but um no so what i was gonna say okay here's a sidebar when I, i was i went to a restaurant to get drinks with some co-workers for the first time the other night Uh the first time like in a restaurant oh yeah okay um 
like getting beers since COVID. Yeah. Which was awesome. And then on the way home, I was a little drunk riding my bike home listening to Drumming by Steve Reich, which is an awesome like 45 minute long piece with just drums. Yes. Fucking awesome. That I like. And that piece, it's so cool because like you can like focus on one pattern and hear how it relates to the new pattern and like like the the emphasis changes and you can choose to go with the new emphasis or try to hang on like to the old <laughs> to the old thing yeah um but when i was listening to that and thinking about that robert fink thing about maximally repetitive music and this is also because i was drunk and this probably doesn't make any sense but i was thinking about the political spectrum that's not just left right but that's divided into four quadrants where like the vertical axis is like more authoritarian, less authoritarian. And then the left, right axis is, um, um, left economic and right economic. Okay. And I was thinking that a cool way to talk about minimalist composers and I I don't like, probably this has been done before, but like, it doesn't really matter which, but like say the top bottom axis is like more repetition, less repetition. And then the left, right is less material and more material. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and you would you would Where definitely you would put Reich like closer to that like oh yeah like more repetitions for sure. Yeah, right. There's some. Yeah, you're well. You're right. There's. I thought I, I might have been trying to make a grander point about that, but I can't remember. But um, well, how it relates to drumming. Um, but uh, yeah, oh, I, Jesus. No, that that is a, that is a like a really interesting way to think about it because like take somebody like Adams, John Adams, he would be in a totally different quadrant from Reich. Right. So, so for, to me, John Adams is more like a, um, like glasses music is sometimes I feel like, like pop classical music or something, right. Where it's like really easy to listen to. Yeah. And, but that's not a dig I'm not making a judgment about it by, by calling it that. Mm -hmm. Um, but Adams seems like more, um, like a what we would classically consider a like in quotes composer right so he would be in like the more material less repetition um quadrant yeah i i think i mean it's hard to even consider his music minimalist and it's hard with these it's hard with these guys because these motherfuckers are still writing music and their music is has changed throughout their career um if you i think yeah. if you if you kind of like look at their like like most like like their most known works and like what they're really known for um but you know i i think that like john john adams well we should we should tell our listeners maybe we should give some background on more on john adams for our listeners yeah um he was Go for it. let's see so john adams for asa and natasha <laughs> uh <laughs> So he um he has a cla- like a classical music background. He's like he like has done like a lot of opera um and like a lot of orchestral music. Mm-hmm. Like he's he, one of his most famous operas is uh Nixon in China, which he wrote in the 80s, right? Um yes. another one, a more recent one, Doctor Atomic. Um and like there and I think yeah, I think that his 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 music is like I don't know it's it's more i think it's similar to glass in that it's more like almost like pop oriented like you could almost hear hear it 
I don't know, in a context outside of like a concert hall. Interesting. I, I don't, I don't know how much I agree with that. I feel like his is more concert hall oriented than, than glass. For sure. Yeah. I don't know why I feel that way, but, um, what, something I do really like about, like, about, about Adams, you know how, like, when Brad Neldow plays songs by the Beatles or by Radiohead, Mm -hmm. like, he's really tapping into an old jazz tradition where, like, all the things we consider jazz standards were really just pop tunes Uh, back then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when Adams composes an opera about, like, Nixon going to China or Dr. Atomic, which that's about, um... The Manhattan Project. Oppenheimer, right? Yeah. Right. So he's like tapping into an ancient operatic tradition about like writing operas about events that were happening or about what life was like mm. at, at a certain time. Yeah. So I really like that. Um, Nixon in China and John and uh, oh my God, do you remember we had to fucking sing excerpts from Nixon in China in oh, God. goddamn Lynn Burkett's oh class? God. Yeah, yeah. That was so fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> but even, like, I would say he probably changed the most out of the three composers that we've talked about so far. Because, like, Nixon in China mm. is so wildly different than Dr. And, than, than Dr. Atomic. Yeah. And probably, like, if someone was listening to this and they were, like, a real John Adams head, they would probably like swap me or I like get a get a Twitter troll to tell me to kill myself because Nixon in China is really repetitive. Yeah. I don't I don't know a lot of John Adams music really, but I just know like I don't know, when I listen to it, it's not I don't know. I, I hear it's very melody oriented to my ear. Maybe that's what I mean by yeah. like pop poppy, but oh, I see I see it's just like very I mean it's definitely like there's a there's some like serious complexities going on, but I don't know. He uses like modes and like, like, like not tonality necessarily, but like, I don't know, tonality adjacent sounds. Do you know the piano piece, um, Fridge and Gates? Oh yeah. That's not, that piece is cool. Really cool. So cool. That's one of my like dream pieces. I really, really want to learn that piece. Um, is, am I wrong to say like that? Do you like, I don't know. I feel like that's really approachable for a listener who doesn't know anything about minimalism. It's definitely approachable. Yeah. For, for, for a listener who doesn't know anything about like classical music at large. Like, yeah, I feel like that's a piece that's like really listenable. You're right. There are some like really beautiful, like pop kinds of sounds in that. Mm -hmm. But it's like it's a serious piece. It's a serious composition. Yes. And there's, but, um. There's not one measure in that piece that repeats. It's all new material all the time. Yeah. So like by Robert Fink's definition of minimalism as music that's maximally repetitive, like, is is it, is it minimalism? Right. I don't know. Right. I think it, I think it is. There's like a lot of figures that repeat. I'm cherry picking my data here by saying that there's no measures that repeat. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like in Philip Glass or in Steve Reich, like act measures repeat like over and over and over again. Like yeah. Some pieces are based around like one measure that just shifts in and out. Mm-hmm. And in the atoms, like it's, it's all new material all the time. But I think it goes back to your first point that you even mentioned about minimalism, that it's kind of hard to define and it's kind of like not a really great term because it's not, it's, this music is like really different from each other. It's not like listening to like 
like Schubert and Schumann or something <laughs> where it's yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it can be, it can sound totally different and to call it all minimalism, it's, it doesn't really, there's like a lot more depth to it. Yeah. Address, um, address the, the validity of this statement. If someone said to you that, um, John Adams was like the synthesis of Steve Reich and Philip Glass, how would you respond to that? Um, hmm. I think that there maybe is some, there's probably some truth to that, but I think like, um, like we were just saying, John Adams is more of an orchestral and opera guy, you know? Yeah. I guess Glass wrote opera stuff. Did he, did he? Or orchestral Oh yeah, he wrote, he, he, he wrote a shit, I don't know if he wrote a shit ton of operas, but he definitely wrote operas. And I don't know. I watched one in quarantine because the um, um, what's the Met was streaming. It's one of uh, fuck. They were streaming Akhenaten, maybe. Oh, dude, Philip Glass wrote a shit ton of operas. He wrote 14 goddamn operas. Holy shit. Damn. But I think... Wow. That's cool. They seem like they're older subjects, though, than, than Adams's operas. I don't know, man. I don't, I don't agree with that statement that you mentioned before. Okay, that's cool. I don't I'm know. not sure I do either. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think so. I feel like their music is, is kind of like all different enough. They, of course, they, have, they use similar processes but they have really different sounds. Have you, have you played any of this music? Um, not, not really. Um, clapping music where the fucking wasp landed on our music. Yeah. Um, classic. Yeah. So at Crane, there's a, a contemporary music ensemble, which, Oh my God. Like, Contemporary is another misnomer yeah. because That's like it was a contemporary music ensemble, but clapping music was probably written in like the sixties or some shit. And we were playing it in 2010. That's not contemporary. My mm, guy. No, but while we were performing it, a wasp landed on our music stand and that was, that was pretty <laughs> fucking freaky. Yeah, that was weird. That was scary. Um, um, uh, yeah. So like, Oh shit. What was I saying? I'm getting, I'm getting drunk. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, okay, here's another here's another hypothetical statement that someone says to you. Okay. Um like I sent you or I was telling you um like several months ago that I was listening to the Philip Glass piano etudes. Yeah. And trying and telling you to listen to them and write and write me some piano etudes. Yep. Okay. So I feel like when uh, so when I listen to those piano etudes, I'm like, uh, it's a little bit like the Philistine sort of person who goes to an art museum and sees a Jackson Pollock and says like, oh, anybody can do that, right? <laughs> but of course, no one can create, like, y- y- you know what I mean? But when I listen to the piano etudes, I'm like, yeah, of course, I, I can write minimalist piano music. But then when I try to, it's like really fucking hard. Yeah. So... Do you think those two things are equivalent? Like the person who says they can compose minimalism like Philip Glass and the person who says they can paint like Jackson Pollock? I agree. I think, I think so. And 
especially with when people listen to minimalist music and they're like, you know, there's not much going on here. Like I could do that, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Like I, what, what I think that is a crit, like a lot of people's critique and a lot of people maybe don't like minimalism because there's like there it's there's not much going on. It's like okay, it sounds nice on on a surface level, but yeah, like I could throw paint at a canvas. I could sit at the piano and play a triad for half hour, you know. Yeah. Obviously there's yeah. more to it than that, but that I think that from, right. from an Wait, outsider's a- perspective, like they're looking at it and being like what's going on here? Where where is the like, what am I supposed to be hearing? Where's the craft here? You know? Yeah. Un- unfortunately, in my case, it's also from an insider's perspective. <laughs> like, <I'm, laughs> I wouldn't necessarily say I'm an outsider to classical music. Yeah, well, there's an effortlessness with his, like, approach to writing that. Like, the, I, I remember yeah, I, I, think- I listened to all those etudes, actually, and... Now that's a piece where I could put it on in the car or if I'm doing chores or cooking it's dinner so or whatever, I could listen to that anytime, you know, um, because it's so, the, the, the etudes are so beautiful and they're so beautiful and, but then and they're so simple. They're so simple, but you know, and so difficult. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they're hard to play, but I was listening to one. I, I, it was either eight or nine that I was listening to a lot. And I noticed that there was some kind of, um, there was like some kind of like inversion thing, maybe like a bunch of like first or second inversion triads, like in the super low register that were just like, uh-huh. it was like low enough where it was so muddy that I, it's like, I couldn't quite tell what was happening, but my ear was just uh-huh. drawn toward it, toward it. Like if it was like up an octave or a couple octaves, I would, I wouldn't have even noticed it. But I think just because of like, the register that it was in and what's characteristic usually in piano music. I like mm-hmm. was just drawn to that sound. And I kept, I, I just kept listening to the, like this left. I'm sure there was something more interesting happening in the right hand, but just the way that like the craft of that, like putting that really far down, like created this muddiness. It's a sound, a triad is a sound that like we, we know and we are familiar with and like mm-hmm. we have, we have an association with, but just like the, something as simple as putting it l- so low where it distorts the quality of the sound. I think that's part of like the brilliance mm-hmm. of the piece because you could listen to it a bunch of times like that and find these little subtleties. And mm-hmm. it's, yeah, I think that right there is like what was cool about minimalism because it, you know, you, you can listen to it so many, so many times over and over again and you're going to hear something new mm-hmm. each time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those pieces are so good. They work great as a soundtrack for board games. Oh, yeah. It's really important to pair board games with soundtracks. <laughs> and, um, yeah. I think we used the, the glass etudes f- for a game about art galleries uh-huh. that seemed to to fit thematically or something. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Um, um, yeah. So minimalism why why do people why should people listen to minimalism like our listeners out there like if they're like okay maybe i'll check out some philip glass why what what is good about it i wish i was prepared to answer that nick that's a good question (laughs) so i think you know like um like the, the the way that 
you get out of something, what you put into it, like the study of an instrument or the study of any craft or like being in school and taking classes, like you get out of the thing, the effort that you're willing to put into it. Mm-hmm. And I think that minimalism, these like these first three, well, at a really surface level, a lot of it is interesting, right? Like Reich's music, there's no denying how interesting it is and how captivating, like hearing all the different combinations of things. Because I feel like in, in his music, like in, in something like Brahms or Schoenberg, like the developing variation where like um, thematic material is changing into new motives, like this happens in Liszt too. And that's so fucking convoluted and esoteric. In, in Reich, it's like a little bit simplified. In in a way that like um you you like peek behind the curtain right and it's like yeah all I'm doing is just shifting this one note over and then you get a new thing and he but he lets you hear that that process yeah right and so so like for one thing I I some of it I think is just like like a fascinating aural landscape right um part of it is like um a little bit is hedonistic the right word it's just like really pleasurable to listen to like the philip glass etudes there's no dissonance or there's a very few dissonances and the ones that the ones that are there like they sound so pretty like it's really pretty beautiful music and normally like i don't like and you don't really play like quote unquote beautiful music, but it's sometimes as for a change of pace, it's like nice to listen to something that sounds good and something that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I agree. What about you? What do you think? I think that people should listen to minimalism because it's, well, I mean, of course all these things we're saying are, are, are really like the essence of it, but also like, I feel like it helps you and this is going to kind of like tie into what I want to talk about with Pauline Oliveros, but with deep listening, but Mm -hmm. it causes you to have an inclination to always be analyzing what you're hearing. You know what I mean? Like, like with, I don't know when, when we, when you go to school or college to study music, you learn like the like Western art tradition and it's, uh, you know, like obsessive with dominant tonic, dominant, you know, subdominant, dominant tonic, you know, dominant tonic. It's like you, you learn, you learn a certain like, uh, uh, like how notes and chords have like, like polarity notes pulled toward mm-hmm. one another. Um, and so you just get, you just start to, it becomes accustomed. Your ear starts to hear those things, but with minimalism, it's not, it's not even about dominant tonic relationships, uh, mm-hmm. but you, I mean, you hear that in pop music too. You hear, you know, five going to one and all kinds of styles, but, but mm-hmm. m- like you were saying, minimalism, it like you peek, you peek behind the curtain. It's all about the process. And as a listener, you have to be on your toes <laughs> listening to it at a highly alert level. Even if it's something as simple as an eighth note shifting over, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So it caused, how do you think, like that that high level of awareness translates to like the meditative quality of it sometimes yeah well i think 
because when you're meditating, you know, you have to be like aware of your body, of your breath, of like every little detail that you like when I like because I do yoga sometimes, you know, like I'm thinking about like, oh, okay, like, oh, I'm not sitting up straight. I never sit. I'm so bad at yoga because I'm fucking like I'm all caffeinated and shit. And I'm like, I got to do this and I got to do that. Goddamn capitalism. (laughs) Shit. You know, so I think minimalism, I think, is a really good maybe antidote for our like capitalist culture that we live in that we're we're mm. are brainwashed you know so anyway i think it just causes causes you to be really alert and maybe somebody listens to it and they're not prepared to be <laughs> as like cognitively available but at the very least like you said some pretty major chords okay fine that's yeah, great yeah but if you want to go deeper you don't have to have the whole fucking knowledge of western harmony behind you to like yeah. to, to like you know grasp it you can you can listen to it you know maybe if you're a fucking scientist you can listen to it and you can be like oh equations and shit i don't know yeah i'm just saying like there it's it just like there there's some kind of like global global like i don't know pull to it to it i I feel like i don't know does that make sense it makes sense i think yeah um Um, fuck. Oh, these drinks are strong. <laughs> Very good. I kind of need another. I think we maybe. Need... <laughs> let's take a let's take a pause real quick because that 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 was a pretty good segment into the we can go in a uh, pretty good segment pretty good segue. Oh no, wait. Oh. First we gotta do oh, uh, two truths and a lie. Oh shit. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so this is a new segment we're um, experimenting with called Two Truths and a Lie. And what's going to happen, Nick is the best known bullshitter on planet Earth. That's why I thought the good gin was the one that tasted the worst. It's why I thought the stop signs with the white borders meant you didn't have to stop at them. Um, Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so here's what's gonna happen. Nick has. Oh, I really gotta pee though. We could oh, should okay. we should we should we do break and then and we could start our next segment with Let's take two truths oh, and a lie. Okay. Okay. Well. Okay. Let's let's say what it is first, and then um then we can do it. So Nick is gonna give me two truths. And one lie about Philip Glass, John Adams, and Steve Reich. Each, like, so in total, six truths and three lies or whatever. About the, about the, oh my God. If I, (laughs) whether or not I guess the lie correctly or incorrectly doesn't matter. We're going to edit it into that composer's Wikipedia page. We're not doing this with the female and composers of color. We're just doing it with these idiot old, like 80 year old white guys. I'm not trying to fuck with the Wikipedia page of Julius Eastman or Paulino Oliveros, right? Um, and then we're going to sponsor a competition. And the first, the first listener that, um, the first listeners that get back to us and show that the Wikipedia pages have edited our lies out gets a secret prize. Um, you won't know what it is. We definitely know what it is. Don't even think that we don't know what it is yet. Um, but, okay, so let's take a break, get some drinks, 
and then play Two Truths and a Lie. I'm psyched. I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> drinking a little italy so goddamn tasty cannot recommend chinar enough to everyone out there and and rye and frankly like i don't know man gin cocktails just don't really do it for me Mm, anymore okay unless it's super fucking hot out okay if it's super hot it's hot it's hot as hell where i am yeah 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 then like gins and tonic or is it yeah I'm just going with then that shit. You can slam them. Yeah, I'm just going with this again. The gin and vermouth, and um, it's hot as hell. I can't drink a beer right now. You know what? It's too hot for a beer. What? What about like an ice cold Pabst Blue Ribbon? Yeah. God's yeah. God's gift to hotness. <laughs> I don't know. I I like like if it's really hot. I I don't know. I I don't. I don't like a beer. I like. I prefer a beer when I it's warm. I swear to fuck. I swear to fucking God, Nick. You better say one positive thing about PBR I, right now. I'm gonna fucking kill you. <laughs> if you if you tell me what to do, I, you can't tell me what to say. I'm gonna fucking. <laughs> uh, um, okay. Okay. Let's play two truths and a lie. Oh, are we back? We're back. Oh, that's right. Okay. Um. All right. Are you ready? Here are. Three. Who are we doing? Who are we doing first? Here's okay. Steve Reich. I'm gonna say three things about Steve Reich. Two of them are real. One of them is not. Okay. Let me get my. Okay. All right. Ready? Steve yeah. Reich has an interest in African drumming, and went to Ghana to study with professional drummers. Okay. Okay. Um. Two. Steve Reich heard Johnny Greenwood play electric counterpoint at a music festival in poland at the time he had never heard radiohead this was in 2011 but he was impressed with johnny's performance of electric counterpoint and decided to start listening to radiohead and he he, <laughs> he, he, he is johnny greenwood in radiohead i think he's the guitarist of radiohead okay yeah. got it got it um and he even wrote uh he even composed some music based on creep which is a radiohead song Okay, that's fact or lie too, and oh, that's cool. I hope that one's real because I want to hear that creep piece. <laughs> fact slash lie, three. Um, he wrote a piece called "Broken Ice Maker" in which the performer repeatedly pushed the ice button even though the machine was not working. It was poorly received at a contemporary music festival, <laughs> with one critic describing it as more like a broken rice maker. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's obviously that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the last one. Uh, okay. Okay. Um. Oh. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna edit that into. <laughs> what year did he write that? 
1998. 1998. Okay, in the 1990s. Um, damn, editing in Wikipedia is hard. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe I should, we should do this after, but in in 1998, he wrote a piece for Broken Ice Maker. Um, called Broken Ice Maker. Oh, a piece <laughs> called <laughs> Broken Ice Maker. It was widely panned. <laughs> One critic saying more like Broken Reich Maker. I love it. That was a great lie. Maybe that was maybe that one was too obvious. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, no, I want to see, actually. I want to see it. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna um, when I post like the audio for the episode, I'll post post the screen caps of this. Oh, great. It looks pretty fun. Because <laughs> um, now, like this 1990s thing says, like Reich returned to composing purely instrumental works for the concert hall, starting with Triple Quartet, 1998. Blah blah blah. According to Reich, the piece is influenced by Bartok's and Alfred Schnitka's string quartets and Michael Gordon's Yo Shakespeare. In 1998, he wrote a piece called Broken Ice Maker. It was widely banned. Okay, next. Who are we doing next? Okay, Terry Riley is next. We didn't even talk about him. (laughs) Okay, why don't you give the listeners a quick update about who Terry Riley is? Sure. Um, so Terry Riley is another, um, minimalist composer. Um, and he was really heavily influenced by jazz and Indian classical music. Um, he used, mm-hmm. he used a lot, uh, also like of electronic music that we haven't really talked about a whole lot. Electronic music, like mm-hmm. kind of, kind of almost is its own thing because a lot of like glass, um, Reich and, um, Adams, like the three main composers we just talked about earlier, a lot of their music is acoustic music that can be performed in the concert hall. Not exclusively, but it's it's more so. I think Terry Riley's music, while he does have some orchestral stuff, he did experiment with more like tape loops and stuff. And um, mm-hmm. uh, he actually has a really, one of my, I, I'm not crazy about Terry Riley's music, but one of my favorite albums by him is called... Um, Shit, let me make sure I get the name right. I always forget the name. It's called Persian Surgery Dervishes, and it's just him improvising at an organ for like two hours. And it's re- oh, it's actually cool. really, really good. And he's a really accomplished like organist. Um, and he's, he's, mm. he's pretty cool. Um, some of his music is like a little hit or miss for me personally. But anyway, let's talk about three things. <laughs> yeah. One of them. You know, I was confusing Terry Riley with Lamont Young. Oh, okay. I don't know. Because Lamont Young wrote a really cool piece called The Well-Tempered Piano. Okay. Which is, like, obviously a reference to Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier. Right. And he, like, retunes the piano, so it's, like, just intonation or something like this. And it's, like, a five- or six-hour improvisation. And it's so cool because you don't ever hear, like, the piano like kind of out of tune with itself in like professional or like concert classical music. 
But yeah, Lamont Young and Terry Riley are not the same guy. Yeah. What do you know? Do you know anything about In C by Terry Riley? Uh, yeah, that's one of his most. That's like hit probably his most famous or most known work. Um, yeah, it's basically like a piece where, like, it's heavily improvised. Like there are just short mm. melodic fragments that musicians. It can be performed in like an orchestra, and the orchestra orchestra musicians are just looking at like little phrases, and. They, they they start those phrases, but then they can kind of just do their own thing. Um, I don't know if it's conducted or not. I'm not sure if there's a like a like a, a formal score that they must there must be some something that the musicians look at because there are specific phrases like these melodic ideas, but it's heavily improvised. And that's another thing that's unique about his music, even though it's minimalist and there are some structures and there's a specific process. He, he, I think because of his in, influence from jazz. I mean, those other guys were also influenced by jazz, but improvisation was a bigger feature in his music. Okay, so where would that put him for you on like the four quadrant political spectrum? Mm. I think probably in the quadrant that has the fewer, like less material, because he didn't write uh-huh. as much material. Like if you take if like you take a piece like in C, for example, versus let's say the uh, glass piano etudes. Uh-huh. He didn't write as much material. There's like little fragments of melodies. So I would put him in down, down there, but there is a lot of repetition with his music. So I would say less material, Connection. but more repetition. Or I don't know. That's what that's, but yeah, because there's a world in which like every, so in C has like 50 some odd, modules right that people are playing and improvising on Mm -hmm. there's probably not one of philip glasses like the a2s for instance like you just said that has like 50 different like even like taking the a2 cycle as a set like there might not be 50 different um uh (laughs) i know what you're i know you you know you know you know what i'm trying to say yeah yeah so maybe like i i don't know actually He's so different from those guys, I think, in, in a way. And it's probably because of the improvisation. Because, like, in Glass, there's no improvisation. Right. And the same in in, in Adams, as far as I know. There's definitely an element of improvisation in Reich where, like, when people playing acoustic instruments are trying to simulate a phase... Like, that can't be duplicated perfectly every time. There right. is, like, sort of an improvisatory element about that. And also, I think in, like, goddamn, Reich wrote a piece called Music for Blocks of Wood, which is a fucking awesome piece. But I think that there's, like, some, in terms of, like, repetition of phrases, like, there's some choice. Yeah. But, yeah, Riley is definitely, like, the freest of them all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I obviously don't know very much about Terry Riley, so this one might be trickier. Let's hear it. Okay, so Terry Riley um, has lived most of his life in Southern California, and he has never slept inside. <laughs> okay, uh, that's the first thing. Second thing is he's a huge fan. Define, define never. His parents never let him sleep inside? Never. Never. 
Two, he's a noted fan of Art Tatum and Bill Evans. Uh-huh. Uh, three, he studied uh, tabla in the 60s. <laughs> okay, that one makes a lot of sense. I know, I know. I'm going, I'm going with he never slept outside. <laughs> inside. Oh, inside. Always right. sleeps, he never slept inside. He always sleeps outside. Okay, um, so I'm going to edit that into his life thing. Um, Riley continues to perform live and was part of the All Tomorrow's Parties Music Festival in May 2011 and has never slept indoors. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. That's good. Oh, shit. Oh, look. That one's going to be clear that someone fucked with it. It looks ugly. Oh, it's clear. Yeah, it might be clear anyways. Okay, awesome. Okay. <laughs> and I have one I have one more. I have one more for you. Okay, who's this about? Okay, this is John Adams. Okay. And we already know we already know about John Adams from the previous segment, so we can jump right into the <laughs> two truths and a lie. Okay. Um John Adams drove across the country when he was 23 years old from New England mm-hmm. to California and his Volkswagen broke down shortly after leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, How did he finish the trip? He, well, well, he had to get his car fixed and he, but he eventually got there and he spent, um, he spent, well, he was planning on just going to California for like a year, but he ended up spending like pretty much his, his life there. He's, he's he kind of, he re- still live there probably. I think he relocated there. Yeah. But he's from originally from, Maybe Massachusetts, I think, or Connecticut or some shit. Okay. Um, okay, so that's the first thing about him. Okay. Second, yeah. his father manufactured barber chairs, and there was always an extra <laughs> there was always an extra barber chair around the house. <laughs> and the first few pieces he wrote, he wrote in that barber chair. <laughs> that's the second thing. Okay. And the third thing is he's famous for saying, if opera is going to be part of our lives, it has to deal with contemporary issues. Oh, well, you know. Which I really like. I don't mean to, yeah, I don't mean to toot my own horn or jerk my own dick, but one of the reasons I said I liked Adams earlier was that. Because you were jerking His operas dick. deal with, well, yes. Well, I was. <laughs> it's neither here nor there. But I do appreciate that he's writing operas about contemporary issues. That's cool. Yeah. You know what? I believe that his dad was a barber, but I don't believe that there was always an extra barber chair around the house. Yeah, like if you manufacture barber chairs, why? What situation would be like? Oh man, like the barber chair factory, like they don't have enough space for this chair. Let me just take this one home. So my. You remember? Um, the episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza is like talking about ho- hotel employees like oh. taking bars of soap home. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, if I owned the hotel, I would just give them bars of soap. They'd have pictures of me in their home, like Lennon. Or maybe Jerry <laughs> says something about that. All right. Who is this about? This was about John Adams. John Adams. Um, life and career before 1977. <laughs> Um, as an adolescent whose father manufactured 
barber chairs and um, and always had oh my god I can't type for shit always had an extra one around the home he lived in Woodstock, Vermont for five years before moving to Concord, New Hampshire. Okay, that's pretty good. Okay, so for um, our listeners, the first one that reports us, reports to us that, um, oh my God, <laughs> it looks pretty funny. And it, I love Wikipedia so much, <laughs> but it's really fucking clear. Like, I mean, maybe our edits are even gone by now. Never slept indoors. It's still there. <laughs> okay, real quick before we leave these three guys, um, do you want to give a, a listening list for the people we've talked to about so far? Um, yeah. Okay, so let's start with Philip Glass. My my like required Philip Glass listening. We've talked about it. The piano etudes, they're beautiful. They are. Um, I don't know, man. They're fucking beautiful. Whatever. They sound like they sound like movie music sometimes, which I just learned today that fucking Philip Glass composed the music for Truman Show, one of the best movies of all fucking time. Um. Yeah. So the glass piano etudes, um, glass works is like the obvious choice. And um, I don't know. Do you have any other glass works? Um, well, yeah, I'm, I love the piano tu- etudes as well. Um, and also, did you know that he, do you know that, that series, uh, it's called Tales from the Loop? Yes. He, um, yeah, one of, actually, well. Did you read that book? Um, oh yeah. It's like, it's like pictures. Yeah. It's like he, this fucking dude paints pictures yes. and then writes like a two paragraph story about each picture. Yeah. I, so <clears throat> Yes, I did because you recommended it a long time ago to me, and I also started watching the show. Holy shit, the show is oh. so depressing. It will like just oh, it will just like make you want to just like not do anything for days. It's really depressing. Is it good? Yeah, it's good, but I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, actually, I would, but just uh, you have to be in the right mood for it. Similarly to a lot of this music. Um, Wait, why is it so depressing? The the book like it's, it's so sad. Oh, dude, I don't, oh. it's so fucking sad. Shit, maybe I misread the book, but the book, I was like, oh, this is, like, charming. It reminds me of my childhood somehow. It's, like, really nostalgic. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, but anyway, all the stuff that you said about Glass, I also really like his, um, there, he has a concerto for cello and orchestra. Okay, cool. It's really good. I don't know that piece. Um, okay, how about Reich? Reich, piano face. Yeah gotta be different trains like it love it gotta have it electric counterpoint um i don't think i know that one very well you recommend it yeah music for 18 musicians drumming music for blocks of goddamn wood Hmm. did i say different trains yeah uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um i like i like come out that. come out it's gonna rain oh come out is really good um what else yeah that's i've been listening to music list. for 18 musicians like almost every day i really love that one it's a good one that's yeah 
I really, really wish I could write music like that. Out of all these guys, out of the the three guys we've talked about so far, I think Reich is the one like I feel most attached to, as like they're the one I would like want to attach myself to as a composition student. Mm-hmm. I love like the like the working out of all the material possible, like <laughs> yeah. the like encyclopedic thing about it. Like I fucking love that. Yeah. But then I also love that he had like. And this is where where I like where a lot of my flaws as a composer come. Where like I don't allow for any of the um, like like leeway in improvisation or just like performer choice. Like I fuck up there a lot, right? Where like and and his music like has life and it breathes mm. and it like it's like a process for the listener as much as it is for the performer. Like it's not all set in stone but it's not all absolutely up to the performer either like it's such an interesting balance i i really think his music is special yeah yeah agreed um adams clap clapping music like is a shtick i feel like by this point in time but it's not his fault it's a shtick yeah it's like right it's only because like we live now and we're like used to shticks that it's a shtick. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Because part of this is like, like historically, I mean, we we haven't really talked we haven't talked about like the historical significance of minimalism, but Western classical music, like actually, you were saying before that like when you were in music school, you go from tonic to dominant, tonic, dominant tonic, subtonic, like all this shit. There's like always a goal with with Western classical music. And here, there's finally not a goal. It's just a thing that's listened to or a thing that's performed or experienced, but like it doesn't have its own um, <clears throat> teleology or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, it's, I, I think it's a pretty unique and, um, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I really like this music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. I agree. I, I and I, I actually I agree with you that I think Reich is out of the, the um out of glass Reich and Adams. I, I think I kind of like Reich's music the best. I think partially because of what you mentioned just now about how the there's some flexibility with the performers too. Like it's not just like the rigidity of the score, but the performer has like a little yeah. bit of there's a little leeway for the performer. It's a little leeway. Um what what about um, Adams? What what pieces should uh, our listeners check out by him? Um, from Adams, my all time favorite piece is Frigian Gates. Oh, yeah. It's one of my all time favorite piano pieces. Um, one of the pieces like I most want to perform. Um, yeah, it goes through like all twelve Frigian modes. It's so beautiful in in spots and like ecstatic and depressing in others, and it's like. A, a really fascinating um, uh, fucking specimen <laughs> in like the in <laughs> oh speaking in, speaking of is the insect guy coming on? Oh no! Oh we, okay, so we were trying to get a cicada expert to come on <laughs> to talk about. We just have so many questions about cicadas. We got a lot of questions. It's not happening. No, we didn't. Sorry, I, I couldn't get. Sorry them. to interrupt you. Go on about Adams. No, I don't know. I I really like um, Shaker Loops. You ever hear that one? I like Shaker Loops. 
I like um, uh, Dr. Atomic has a contralto role, which is so fucking cool. For our listeners who don't know, contralto is like a really, really low um, female voice. And there's one in um, Dr. Atomic, which is fucking awesome. It's like a sound that we never hear. Um, Okay, I think I kind of remember this. I also, there's all, is it, uh, sorry, sorry. Um, there's another piece called Harmony Lara, and Harmony Lara was a harmony textbook written by Arnold Schoenberg back in like the 1910s. Um, but um, John Adams wrote a piece called, also called Harmony Lara for orchestra, and there's a recording of the New England Conservatory Orchestra playing it. And like as soon as the, it's it must be in the in in their like online archive somewhere. But I had like friends in the orchestra, and as soon as the orchestra like it's like, then I'm like I was we probably like got drinks at intermission, and as soon as the last tone ends, I'm like, I just start like screaming. Everyone's like, what the fuck, fucking idiot. And they're right, but it's a really cool fucking piece. Yeah. So yeah, I would say. uh, Frigid Gates and Harmony Lara mm-hmm. are the are the two for me there. Yeah. What about you for Adams? Um, well, I definitely like Shaker Loops. Um, I think that's a, and that also is like I think one of his um, like earliest works. Also, Richard. Um, fuck. <laughs> Nixon in Nixon in China. Um, it, oh. just for, just, I think because it's like one of his most, most popular operas. And I think that's a good one for listeners to, um, start with if you're going to get into his music. I th- I think that that's, that's true. But what do you think about like recommending an opera to someone who's only like dipping their toe into classical music? Oh yeah. Um, I think with Nixon in China, it's okay because it doesn't, I don't know. I, I don't. It's, it's so not like, I don't know. It's not like listening to fucking like Rossini or some shit. Yeah. I think, I think you're right because what, earlier when I mentioned that, like I watched classes opera Akhenaten during quarantine, I watched it because, um, I walked into the living room and Lauren was already watching it. Mm. So I th- think there's like something approachable at this, about their music. That's like, yeah. Um, in, in a way that. I don't know, like, I, I fucking love opera, and I don't want to listen to opera. I, you know what I mean? I know. I agree. I don't really, I'm not, I don't listen to a lot of opera. I'm not crazy about opera. Um, I mean, I, it's okay, but, like, I definitely don't listen to it. I mean, yeah, there's not, it's a, I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of um, other stuff out there, but. What, what, um, what kind of booze do you have in your house? Um rum uh-huh gin yeah and vermouth yeah i think that's it right now <laughs> actually no i have some i'm not sure how i'm not sure what it translates to but it's chinese white spirit it's like something about the dragon my friend yi from china brought it to me oh yeah something what is it called it's like a, well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what it's called. He always just calls it Chinese white spirit, but I think that's just because it doesn't translate well. 
Baijiu. I think it's like distilled from rice, maybe. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. It looks pretty awesome. I, well, I'm only asking because do you have anything you can do a shot of? Yeah. All right. Let's, let's take a shot, man. Let's take a shot. What do you want to have? You don't have any whiskey in the house? You got no whiskey? I don't. I'm out of whiskey, but I'll go get some rum. The fuck? You can take a shot of rum? Okay, how about this? Why not? It's like, right. it's like, it's like, um, I don't know what it is. Some kind of, it's like white okay. Bacardi or rum or something. Okay. How about, do you have any coffee grounds? I can grind some. And then, um, wow. have you ever like, you take some ground coffee and then some sugar and put it in your mouth. You chew, gets all nasty and muddy in there. Uh-huh. And then you take a shot of rum, clears it all up. I don't know if I've done that. Should we? Are you interested? Yeah, let's try it. Okay. Okay, cool. And then we'll come back and um, talk about some other some other awesome minimalist posters. I think I have some. I think I have some rum too. So we can make this work. Okay. Before we talk about the next group of composers, we're going to do a little um, little shot. Does this, this, does is, this shot um, have a name? I think, yeah, it did, but it, it was... Um, It was something about Poland. Okay. Because the way I the the way this shot was originally taught to me was that it was ground coffee beans, white sugar, and um, vodka, and it was some sort of Polish nice. Polish coffee. Maybe I don't fucking know. But then um, at the time where I was living, we didn't have any vodka on hand, but we did have rum. And so instead of using white sugar, you, we used cane sugar. Ah. So what we're going to do right now is put a whole shit ton of coffee grounds and sugar into our mouths, chew them right in the microphone like everyone likes, <laughs> and then um, take a shot of rum to wash it all down. I'm using some rum that my friend Kyle with a C brought back from... Somewhere, but you know what? There's stuff floating in this rum. I don't know if I should. Rum doesn't go bad, right? No, it's probably good. It's probably good. It's alcohol. It's like going to kill anything that's bad in there. Yeah, right? it's good for you. Well, that's definitely true. Well, I need a spoon. Um, okay, you ready? 
Yeah. You got your coffee grounds? Yeah. Do you have your sugar? Yeah. That's a that's a good amount. Okay. I'm just taking a classic spoonful here. Where's the sugar? I don't see any sugar in there. Sugar? Yeah. Oh. Oh, hang on a second. Do you have any like white sugar or something? Um Yeah. You, oh, you, oh you shit. You okay, hang on else. a second. Let me go get some sugar. Let me go get some sugar. Alright. My cat is currently clawing at the bowl. He thinks it's his food. It's not his food. He's not allowed to have coffee. You stinky little guy. All right, I got my sugar. Oh, okay, sorry. I got, got I got sugar. confused. I got confused. All right. What was what was confusing about that? Uh, man, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. So you got your coffee grounds. You got your sugar. Okay. And you're just gonna put this in your mouth, and chew it up like a huge spoonful. Okay. Until it's and chew it up until it's muddy and nasty. <laughs> And then take a shot of rum and rinse it all out. Okay. Mm. <laughs> Actually, this tastes pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. That's really good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's a shot of rum. Cheers. Oh my god. Well, Nick's face is telling a story. Oh my god. It's so good. Oh, oh you liked it? It's so good. I think. It, it was really good. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. It was really good. I like that a lot. Wow. Man, I haven't done that in a long ass time. It's pretty good. I learned that when I was in Boston. That's why you don't know about it. Okay. That's it's pretty good. I should have told you about that before. No, that's great. I mean, I know you told you told me about um, the tequila shot with the orange and cinnamon. Ah, that you told me about. That's a trick I learned in Germany. That's good. Yeah, the Germans. You ever do picklebacks? Yeah, pickleback. Yeah, that's we did. We I remember we did pickleback because um, because it's the pickle juice and whiskey shot, right? Yeah, oh, pickle so juice is so good. Do you have any pickle juice? Oh, you don't have any whiskey. What a fucking idiot. Uh, I don't have any whiskey. I think I might have pickle juice. <laughs> All right, well, you can just drink pickle juice. <laughs> All right, let's talk about some other of minimalist composers that aren't of the big three. Mm. Why don't you start? Okay. I'm going to start with Pauline Oliveros. Let's hear it. Um, okay. She was born in Houston, Texas, 1932. That's cool. Uh, she died. Actually, she died not so long ago. I think, um, let's see, 2016 in New York. Um, so she, she had a pretty long life and she had, she like, 
wrote a lot of music. Um, one of the concepts that she was most known for is called deep listening. And I have an interesting story about this. Deep listening is actually it's a uh, it's the name of a group that that she had in the 80s, I think. And deep listening was an mm. idea that she had when she was in Port Townsend in Washington state, which is on the Olympic Peninsula. And it's close to the only, one of the only temperate rainforests in the Northern Hemisphere, in Olympic National Park. What? And there's a reason that I'm telling, I'm saying this. Wait, but I have I have some other questions. Okay. What is temperate rainforest? I'm pretty sure a temperate rainforest means that it's a rainforest that's not above <laughs> the equator. Most rainforests are li- oh. below the equator or near the equator. Okay, smart guy. <laughs> Thanks. So I'm smart. Um, okay. I wrote all this down. I did a lot of research on Pauline because she's cool. All right. So she went into a cistern. Do you know what a cistern is? Uh, it's like where you bake the clay. I think so. It, I, I only know it from like Game of Thrones <laughs> and like like fantasy kingdom shit. I think from, from what I from what I understand. Oh, I- it's like I think I was thinking of a kiln. Oh, okay. Okay, so a cistern is like like an un, it's this underground area. Um and there's a fort, a mil, an old military fort that's been decommissioned uh called Fort mm-hmm. Warden State Park. And that's mm-hmm. in Port Townsend, and there's a mm-hmm. very famous cistern. On uh, like what it is is like it's like an underground service space so that like military personnel could go and put out a fire if there a fire broke out like a like a um like certain forests have like natural burns that ha- happen and mm-hmm. if a burn broke out somewhere on the military base they could quickly go and put it out by accessing these like underground hatches um okay but here's what's unique about it it has a 45 second reverb so like a typical Holy ca- shit. yeah so if you go to a like a typical cathedral that's like about an eight or nine second reverb, right? Ah. Church. Now imagine like what a church you've been in that's really res- reverberant and now fucking like multiply it by five. So, okay. So her band, Deep Listening, went down there and it's, of course, it's a pun, Deep Listening, because literally she went down underground in this fucking oh. deep ass. Yeah. yeah. So she's cool. She's like, she's kind of funny. Holy shit. Yeah. And then, okay. So sh- they made a bunch of recordings down there and like really fucking spaced out. And I think what's cool about Pauline's music is that she, it like her idea of deep listening is driven by the physical space that she's in. You can't really, like she would never have, Mm. she would never have come up with this idea. Well, I mean, she she could have, but the idea was kind of generated by the physical space of this cistern, this like underground space. And I, I think I really like that about our, her music. I, at first, I didn't really, honestly, I didn't like. I couldn't really like listen to her music and like hear anything interesting at first. And that's just me being stupid. Mm-hmm. But then, like mm-hmm. when I, <laughs> well, yeah. when I like did more research on her and like learned more about like what she was doing, really interesting. Um, Wait, but what about it? You didn't you like when you first heard it? Um, I don't know. Like I was just like I don't know. I w- I wasn't sure what I should be listening for. I was like. I didn't know is she 
more of like a minimalist like Steve Reich? Is she using like a certain phasing process or, but no, she's like interacting more with physical space and that's what she's all about. Interesting. Um, and I really like her, her music. Um, uh, and her, gr- her group is called deep listening and they have a bunch of albums from like the 1980s that are really interesting that I would recommend listeners to, li- to check out. Cool. Um, yeah, it's the, the deep listening thing. Um, it's like infiltrated, um, like popular self-help book sort of stuff. Right. So like I have in my hand this book called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny O'Dell, which last year or a year and a half ago, we sold like 10 copies a day of at my bookstore. Mm -hmm. And a little bit, this has to go, Nick, you mentioned, you said something really briefly, like in the first segment about um, minimalism, like taking us away from like the, you said something about capitalism and like this book, how to do nothing is a little bit about how to like, like reclaim yourself, like capitalism and, and our jobs are like a 24 seven sort of, um, like, I don't know, man, like, well, and anyways, this book is a little bit about how to like reclaim a little bit of that time for yourself. Yeah. And she talks about um, Pauline Oliveros. Um, she says, um, attention doesn't need to be spatialized or visual. For an auditory example, I looked deep listening, the legacy of the musician and composer Pauline Oliveros. Um, she began developing. Um, participatory group techniques such as performances where people listen to and improvise responses to each other and the ambient sound environment as a way of working with sound that could bring some inner peace amid the violence and unrest of the Vietnam War. Um, Deep listening was one of those techniques. Oliveros defines the practice as listening in every possible way to every possible Wait, sorry. Listening in every possible way to everything possible to hear no matter what you are doing. Such intense listening includes the sounds of daily life, of nature, of one's own thoughts, as well as musical sounds. Um, Odell goes on to say she distinguished between listening and hearing. Quote, to hear is the physical means that enables perception. To listen is to give attention to what is perceived both acoustically and psychologically. So... A little bit this ties in with what we were talking about earlier that like minimalism allows you to focus your energy inwards but that's kind of what I was saying but what you were saying earlier was that it asks you to listen more intensely than you do listen to um, like Beethoven or Bach or Mozart or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's pretty cool I I really like about it that um, that it's a group experience and that people are listening to each other and reacting towards each other. Yeah. I have a, I have a little bit of an elitist bent in composition and stuff where I'm like, okay, well, like, what separates this from, like, people sitting around a campfire and singing Kumbaya or something or, like, drum circles or something like that? Uh-huh. And that's, that's definitely on me. That's, like, a character flaw of myself. But I, I do really like this idea that, like, um, 
you know, like the way that you can shut your eyes and not see anything, we don't have like a physical implement with which to shut out sound. Yeah. And so like deep listening is like um, an acknowledgement of that and like a, uh, like a, um, oh, what the fuck? Um, I, I think, I think I know what you mean. Like it's. I feel really drunk after that shot. (laughs) (laughs) But you also maybe feel a little more awake because the coffee and sugar. Okay. Okay. Maybe that just hasn't kicked in yet or something. I do have some more coffee grinds in here and I have some more sugar right here. Yeah. Yeah. Just eat some of that shit. That's true. I should just eat this shit. It's good sound too. Um, Speaking of deep listening. Um, Yeah. Well, actually, okay. So, to what you're saying, I think in in a sense, maybe on some level, Pauline Oliveros's music is maybe more challenging and asks more of the listener hmm. than like Steve Reich's music. It, maybe I'm not saying yes or yes or no, but I, I'm just kind of like hypothetically, like if we want to get away from that idea, like, oh, this is one step away from drum circle, kind of just like free improv, like not it's like thoughtless on on some mm-hmm. sense, yeah, sure, if that's how you want to listen to it. But actually, mm-hmm. if you spend the time to like <laughs> like really think about what's happening and listen to these sounds interacting like together as a group, but also in the physical space and also how you're perceiving it as the listener, there's like layers and layers that you could take away from what you're hearing. Are are her scores notated or are they mostly like directional? Um I'm pretty sure some of them are notated. I, I think it depends because she has she's had like here. Let me let me check it out because she's had a pretty. Uh, she has a very big catalog of music. Um, yeah. Let me. Uh, let's see. But I really like about her that it's about group participation. Yeah. It's about like the place in which you are, like the like the reverberant space. Mm-hmm. It's like about being here and now and connecting with the people that you're around. I think that that's pretty cool. Her music is very post-war, very mid-century, like mm-hmm. 1960s. Like it, it's, it has this, it's real, um, like anti-capitalism, anti-imperialism, yeah. anti-Nazism kind of feel, you know? It, yeah i don't know it's very democratic it's very like yeah i don't know she okay so if uh, for listeners out there and wants to check it out listen to her th- her the first records that are by it's called Lis- the deep listening band is the name of her group with two other minimalist composers and i Stuart dempster and i can't remember the other person Stuart dempster I think so, right? Who the <laughs> fuck is that? Oh my god, that's I, the lamest name. I know. Ever. I mean, his name fucking sucks, but he, yeah. I don't know. Oh I don't know. God. Okay, so check that. Check out their like the first couple albums that they they released together as a group in the '80s, and then another really good piece that she wrote um, is. Mm, let me check it out here. I, I, it's from a collection. It's from actually a pretty. Oh shit! I had it on my Spotify. Cause I was just listening to it before. Hang on. 
As you're looking for that, um, where do you put her on the material versus repetition quadrant? Oh, see, this is this is where I get I get a little fucked up. She's more in the Terry Riley spectrum because a lot of her music there's improvisatory elements. A little hard to say mm-hmm. because a lot of her music, actually, the piece I'm looking up right now, is from this album, Electronic Music, which is a really famous album that was released um, in the '60s of three it's just three works like they're each like 20 minute electronic pieces by richard maxfield steve reich Mm -hmm. and pauline oliveros and pauline the last track is by pauline it's called one of four stylized in with roman numerals if anybody out there wants to check it out it's it's heavily electronic and she used like tapes and like computer algorithms and shit um to to generate the music so this piece doesn't have a score there's plenty of repetition and there's drones and elements that appear in other minimalist music of Reich and Glass, but it might be a little hard to, to fit in that um, axis spectrum thing. Hmm. I would say okay. it's closer to where, cool. where Terry Riley is if I had to put her up there. And in which quadrant is that? Less material, yeah. more repetition? Yes, less material, more repetition. Because there is repetition in her music, but it's like it has this improvisatory feel to it. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's cool that that um, her her ideas were used in this like pop psychology self help book. Like that, that's <laughs> I think that that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is interesting because it's not it's not so um, common that like ideas from from music and from classical or ideas from like Western art music are like applicable to life writ large or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty, that's, that's pretty cool for, what does the music sound like? Tonal? Atonal? Atonal. I would describe it as atonal. Definitely. Dronal? For sure. There's like drones and just like weird, like textural things. Um, Wait, did you say atonal? No. Or did you say tonal? No, I said, I would, I would say, I would say atonal, but I, I don't know. Maybe atonal is not the right word. Like it's more like texture and drone oriented stuff. Is it consonant or dissonant? Um, this piece that I just recommended is dissonant, one of four. Hmm. But some of the recordings okay. by the Deep Listening Band are pretty consonant. Okay, cool. Yeah. Pauline Oliveros. She's cool. I approve. We are not going to fuck with her Wikipedia page. No, she's too cool for that. She plays accordion also. That's really cool. I've been trying to play accordion recently. Yeah, accordion is sick. Um, okay, next, uh, how about um, Julius Eastman? Mm. Julius Eastman is one of my favorite composers right now. Um, he was born in New York, lived in Rochester. Um, like classic sort of like 19th century composer story where like his music wasn't appreciated while he was alive. He died poor and alone and sick, like a really, really tragic life story. Born in 1940, died in 1990 at the age of 49 in Buffalo, New York, like probably the worst place to die. And, um, when earlier we mentioned that like we looked up minimalist composers on Google, uh, Julius Eastman was the first black composer that came up and, by some chance, he was also the first composer that didn't have an actual picture of them oh, 
um, displayed, even though like there's uh, re- pictures readily available of him all the time or uh, all over the internet. Um, he was a black man. He was gay. A lot of his pieces have provocative titles, um, which I am not going to say, uh, involving slurs like related to his sexual and um, racial identities. His music um, is it's like highly improvisatory. His his scores are like crazy for their lack of detail. It'll show like like a an emotive of notes like and then like a time like 30 seconds or something like that. And in that time like do you play that that whole thing as many times as you want or do you play it once and like the repeated notes at the end are as many times as you play it and then it's like so he has one piece called evil slur and then it's and it's for four instruments of any like uh similar sound so mostly it's played on four pianos but you can play it on four saxophones you can play it on four organs four marimbas whatever you want um and it's like what a friend of ours, Nick, um, Ron, or I don't know, was it Ron's term for this or your term for this called timeline pieces? Where you would do a certain thing at a certain time and you would all follow a stopwatch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did that a lot with like David and Ronald. Yeah. Yeah. So Eastman's music is, is a little bit like that. Um, but it's. I don't know how it's different, but it's really different. It, but he's also just a, like such a fascinating character. Like, um, there are recordings of him singing. Like, he was an awesome, awesome baritone. He never trained as a singer, really? but there's recordings of of him like singing with um, uh, in orchestral pieces with um, Pierre Boulez conducting. Oh like God. Pierre Boulez is one of the like towering figures of 20th century music and um yeah so it's i i heard about eastman because someone said like also this this isn't to pat myself on the back but um, someone once said a piece i wrote reminded them of eastman and that was like a a compliment far too great to be dealt to someone like me um his his music is galaxies away from mine um but it's so good there's there's like um like a like a really frenetic energy in it that reminds me of like like toddler the creator or something where like it's something just like i i I listen to it and think it's like so on edge but i've recommended to people and warned them like you might not like this it's like really really intense and they're like no, you know, like I, I, I kind of like found it relaxing. Like, okay, cool. That's awesome for you. Wow. But, um, yeah, he, there's a little bit of a renaissance about his music right now. It was pretty ignored for a long time. Uh, but like within the past five years, he's been written up in the New York Review of Books because there was a, a book of his, a, a book of essays about him called Gay Gorilla published by uh, i forget who's published by 
Um, and that was reviewed in the New York Review of Books. Alec Ross, Alex Ross wrote about him in the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I just, I just like it because it's like so dissonant sometimes and so crazy. And there's just like so much happening. It's like the opposite. It's, it's like the opposite of deep listening where like it's representative of like of what we experience in day-to-day life where like we check out Twitter, we check out Instagram, we check our email, we turn on the TV. It's like we're constantly being bombarded with information. And that's a little bit what I feel like when I listen to, to Eastman's music. But um but that's not all of it. Like he wrote some like kind of standard like piano sonatas, mm-hmm. but the 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 pieces I would I would say I, and oh, oh also he wrote one like kind of like pop oriented song that has um, some improvisation. That one's called "Stay on It." I would recommend listening to that. I would recommend listening to. Oh my god, I can't even fucking. How do I fucking? It sounds like when when you're describing his music, it sounds like what you were saying before about how, like the performer, has some leeway with his music. With their, like, they definitely have leeway. Maybe like some frenetic energy and like, like it, like it's different from deep listening, different from Pauline. But on some level too, it's like, it sounds like it has similar emotional energy. Yes. And what I like about his music that is that it's um, like translated into the performer. It's like not only you feel a little bit frenetic and crazy as a listener, but like to play a repeat, like for instance, that thing, that little motive I sang earlier, to like play repeated notes on the piano is really hard and takes a lot of physical effort. And for like four people at four pianos to doing that all at the same time, it creates this like, homogenous mass of sound that's like so overwhelming in a way (laughs) like um there's an arrangement of the rite of spring for like four pianos and two percussionists or something like that Mm -hmm. and it's fucking crazier than stravinsky's original rite of spring could ever dream of being because like the like the the sounds of the piano are so uniform that it just create like it's hard to discern what sound is coming from what instrument. So it creates this like huge massive sound that's just like like washing over you and you have like no choice but to I I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm s i am so psyched to get into more of his music because I don't know I don't know as much of it. Um and I've listened to a few things, but it's hard to it's really hard to find recordings of his works like you said he's having a little mm-hmm. bit of a renaissance right now and maybe the mm-hmm. next five years maybe there's going to be more of a uh selection from his catalog on spotify and, and apple music or whatever you listen to but it's kind of hard to find like good recordings of his stuff right now um there's not much yeah so um but so like what happened is that like he was uh, like evicted from an apartment in new york city and the cops like took all his, he lost all his manuscripts. Oh my God. And it was, I think this woman, Mary, Mary Leach or, or something like she was responsible for like tracking down all of his manuscripts in police archives and like getting them back and trying to put them into like publishable, performable, um, editions. But the problem was that like, 
he, since he was a musician also, like he was also, he was a pianist, he was a dancer, he was a singer, he was a composer, he was all these things that in rehearsals, he would like dictate what he meant by the notes on the page. Yeah. And so now when we have his notes on the page, but we don't have him to sit here and tell us what to do with it, it's like really hard to like to 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 uh give like a um um convincing performance of of the works you know what i mean yeah like how do you how can you be authentic with like that kind of if if the scores are like that it's like such so much non-traditional notation like i mean maybe there are are there like any any recordings of him performing any of his works there are recordings of uh, there, there's recordings of him like maybe playing in Leipzig or something, but that I think that's just like an improvised concert, like a la uh, Cecil okay. Taylor or something okay. like that. Oh, like he's not playing, he's not playing his works. I mean, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fucking great, yeah. but it doesn't help much. You yeah, know? yeah. Wow. Um. Oh, man. Uh, but again, like the same way I said with Reich, like a thing I like about him is a way you could read into like a political, gender, and sexual identity in his music. And some of it is the provocative titles. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a piece called N-Word F-Slur. Like, dirty N-Word, evil N-Word. Like, and when these would be programmed, like, sometimes students would protest. Like, back in in the 70s and 80s, like, people were like, no, like, we can't fucking perform that shit here. Right. And he would often like let them take the names of the pieces off programs, but then give like a talk about why he called them that. Yeah. Like just like a totally fascinating person. Wow. And really, really good music. I. Well, I, I'm I'm really glad that to hear though that that had, it's like being rediscovered and people are hearing it and and hearing about it and I think that's that's like a I think that's really important. Um, because like we we've been talking about so many white people in this in this style, um, yeah. Yet if there's some universality to just like again, you don't have to have like a whole history of Western no- music behind you to jump into the minimalist style. Like it's more about the process right. that you're using, and so why not have more representation, right? Right. Um, right. There's. Um, Ugh, I don't know if I want to get into all this. But I read a book this year by a woman named, I think it's Ellen Hisama. And she was analyzing the music of like Ruth Crawford Seeger. Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, like there, there was this push this, since like, it was such a fucking awesome book. But there, there was this like push in the new musicology in the 80s um, from like Susan McClary and people like to analyze music with respect to like the composer's gender identity and sexual identity as like having some sort of influence on the the product that came out yeah right like in the 19th century people or in like german romantic aesthetics are like no just the piece exists it's too beautiful for the world it doesn't have anything to do with like you you know what i mean but then someone like adorno might say like no like music is composed in a society and is subject to the values of that society. Yeah. And then people like Susan McClary and um, Elias Sama would be like, 
yeah, okay, well, also gender and sexual identity are part of those, um, are, are part of that as well. And so she was examining how, like, Ruth Crawford Seeger's gender might influence the way the music comes out. And it's not like, um, it's it's not like a formal, or not, not formalism, but it's not a thing where she's saying, like, Ruth Crawford Seeger wrote the music this way because she's a woman, right? It's not like an absolutist thing like that. It's like maybe her experience as a woman influenced her music to come out this way. Right. And Ali Hassama has also written about Julius Eastman. And I, I haven't written about it, but his music is radically different from the, like the straight white male composers like Glass and Riley and Reich. It like there it it doesn't sound like it's it was written on the same planet as those guys. <laughs> right. And it's just so fucking good. Yeah. So but it's but it's minimalist. I would call it minimalism because, like, by Robert Fink's definition, it is maximally repetitive. Mm, okay. Okay. Like, the evil piece, it's like a, like a ba-da-da motive, and then a ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-
Spiegel or I'm not sure if it's Spiegel or Spiegel. I do not. Tell me about it. Okay, so she is um, not really. I, I, okay, so her music. I don't think she ever really considered her a minimalist com- herself a minimalist composer, but um, her music is. She considered it algorithmic computer music or like alg- algorithmic software like she she worked for bell labs as like a computer graphics designer and so she had cool yeah and and i mean i'm talking in like in like the 70s and shit so she had access to all this like like kind of like weird tech um and she used she used a lot of the um like technologies that she was working with at bell labs to create music um I think she was Ooh. like kind of formally trained in music. I'm not sure. Um, uh, yes, she went to Juilliard. She studied with Vincent Persichetti. Um, oh. So she's schooled, you know, in in music. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so okay, so she started writing music in the in like the 70s and 80s, and. Her music is not necessarily minimalist. I mean, there's it's very repetitive, and mm-hmm. but I think she didn't see herself in that in that school because, and I think I we we were talking about this before. She did not write acoustic music for performers to play in a concert hall. Her her music was like oh. computer music, like fixed media, like this is the piece. Um, oh, interesting. And, but it's really cool, and she uses like she uses drones. She uses like very like slowly changing um like uh like different way like bringing out like certain frequencies and certain sound waves and shit i don't really know like the science behind it it's all very technical but um she does have a whoever i i'm not sure um the name of the piece but she does have a piece on the voyager spacecraft that has that gold record with like the sounds of earth holy shit are you kidding me yeah, she has one of the tracks on that record is one of her pieces that she created in Bell Labs in the seventies, and I what I, the fuck I have to I have to say that her music is so cool, and I am always so shocked that it doesn't get more, like more people don't know about it. Um, she doesn't have a lot of like music available, but there is one piece on Spotify, um, or it's an album. It's kind of like a collection of her of her works from the eighties. It's called the Expanding Universe. And it's like, I think music from, I guess the seventies and eighties when she was composing all this stuff. And it's really, it's like a really cool, like two, you know, two, two disc LP or whatever, um, that has over like two hours of music that she created at Bell Labs. Holy shit. That's so cool. And there's a couple of pieces on that album that I really like in general. And I was, I just had it pulled up before cause I was checking it out. So let me get the name right. For our listeners, wait the fuck the fucking golden record that they sent into space. Well, first of all, it's pretty cool that we could put. <laughs> first of all, that we have the technology to capture voices and put them on a piece of <laughs> wax. Yeah, that's cool enough. But then that we have the technology to send that shit out into space past. The edges of the solar system, also totally cool. Yeah. Here's my problem. Why the fuck do they think aliens have a fucking hi-fi system (laughs) ready to fucking put on a record? And second of all, 
the other fucking things they put on there are like people saying hello, how's it going in a bunch of languages. What's the point of that? You think aliens are gonna understand what up and shut up? I don't think so. What up? I guess it's. <laughs> I mean, there's there's parts, but that's nice. I, I I like that they put like just sounds of Earth, like sounds of animals, sounds of rain. Makes sense. Like giving them a sense of like that a little bit that makes sense but i guess um if i'm an alien how do i know that rain sounds aren't a language you know what i mean <laughs> yeah right uh, that's true what, what the fuck do i know what do you know what earth fucking sounds like what do i fucking what know you, what it sounds like you don't like? know shit you don't know shit about it god damn. but it's, it's also cool that she's on that same record with bach and beethoven and glenn gould yeah that's pro- okay um, that's probably one of the biggest flexes anyone could ever make <laughs> that they're recording or their voices on the Voyager golden record. That's really cool. Can you imagine a bigger flex? It's a, okay. So uh, I found a piece that I really like. It's called Kepler's harmony of the worlds. And it's that sounds like space music. Yeah, it's the second to last track on that expanding universe album, and that's that is on Spotify. Unfortunately, there's only like like three of her albums on Spotify, which is a damn mm-hmm. shame. But I highly recommend damn, it. She has great. Music. She's pretty cool. So that's Laurie Spiegel. Did she did she write any um, any acoustic music or did she strictly focus on she's, electronic she's music? Not not that I know of. I mean, I, I that's uh, she is still alive, I think. Um, so Laurie, if you're <laughs> Laurie, if, if you're, you're listening, listening, thanks for the cool music and um, let us know if you and maybe <laughs> write a piece for sax and piano. <gasps> yeah, I don't know if she Ex- I, expand your horizons. Let me see. I don't. I, she very well could have written some orchestral music or something, but. I think it's her, her, her like main thing was the writing the algorithmic computer music. Cool. Um, I want to briefly mention Meredith Monk. Um, oh, yeah. she's a composer, performer, choreographer. She's also still alive. She's 78 years old, born in 1942. The album I really like by her is called Piano Songs. It's a set of pieces for two pianos. There's an awesome recording on Spotify by Ursula Oppens, an amazing pianist, and Bruce Brubaker, one of my teachers from grad school. And these are like kind of short pieces. They're repetitive in the way that glass is, but they sound more like pop songs. Um, Like as she she calls them, piano songs. Okay. And they remind me like... Like as if they're in the in a tradition of Bach or Schumann, where like there's a single motive that spins out an entire song. Yeah, and I guess you could kind of say that about a lot of minimalist music, but for some reason, this this one singular album from her like really reminds me of that. It's good. It's like also good headphone music. It's good walking around music. Good like um like doing other stuff music, but. It's also good, like, deep listening music. Mm. And, like, oh, my God, my cat is fucking clawing me. Oh, what up, Tinker? I'm sure you have food. Okay, whatever. Um, yeah, so Meredith Monk, Piano Songs. 
that's that's really good stuff. Sick. Um, I'd also love to mention Alvin Curran. Oh yeah, he's another white guy, but um, he's a lesser known composer. He's I I um, learned about him when I was in grad school in Boston. He had a huge influence on my composition style. Like I've just lifted stuff out of his pieces and put it into mine. Is he the guy that um, that, that wrote um, like a a jazz standard into the back end of one of his works? If you're asking if he's the person who I stole that from for one of my own pieces, <laughs> yes, you're right. You're you're right. That's awesome. I wrote this piece. That's like four chords, takes like 90 minutes, and then at the end there's a jazz standard. And Alvin Curran wrote a piece that's like 25 minutes, two chords, and there's a jazz standard at the end. His is better, obviously. It's really fucking good. What what tune is yours again? Um, what, what tune is? is uh... My tune is On the Street Where You Live. <laughs> oh, yeah. His tune is um, Body and Soul. Sick. Yeah. But his music I like because it's like, aggressively minimalist it's like here's one chord and you're gonna listen to this one chord for 12 minutes and these other these other composers aren't so much like in that vein right yeah like there's there's in his music there's kind of like um like a stoppage of time or or like a suspension of progress where it's like just just listen to this one chord and then all the way the ways the notes can be played in order but it's also like really free there's no way really to like it's i mean i'm a fucking idiot it seems random to me the things he writes but it sounds like good music yeah so i don't know so okay now your piano pieces because you have you have a lot of music that you've written for piano are you a minimalist composer I was going to ask if you think I'm a minimalist composer. I don't think so. I mean, maybe, maybe you could argue, but I don't know. What, I mean, what do you think? In, in a certain, in a certain sense, yes. Playing one chord for 10 hours is like by definition, by definition, minimalist. Yeah, that's, that's (laughs) 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 <laughs> 10 hours 10 hours yeah um and then there's other there's other pieces where like i mean yeah i i might say that my music is inspired by minimalism but it's, it's like probably doesn't come from as an authentic like organic spot that the composer that the music of these composers comes from because like I'm writing it like 50 years after they developed their stuff, right? Like okay. it's not what I'm doing is not new. It's like an imitation or like a repackaging of what they've done. It is, you know what I mean? Yeah, it is like like in in the way that Steve Reich's music like forces the listener to like kind of hear and understand the process. You know, like I feel like listeners when it's they, a little bit like that, like not 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 completely like that, but I feel like like take the piece with the the all the triads. You know, you know that one. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that is another one that is really, like, you that one forces you to hear <laughs> triads, like, but in like, 
in all these different kind Wait, of... Wait, are you talking about the one that's just like... Bee, bah, bee, bah, bah, bah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The one that's... That yeah. one is like... You really... You, I don't know. You can hear... I don't know. I, I, I think that your music is... Yeah, it's inspired by minimalism, minimalism, but it's more about like the... Like impact that the structures create on the performers and the listeners it's impactful for the listeners and the performers i mean i know that sounds cool because i yeah you've played I it i played that like the piece <laughs> the for, so um so max has a piece for piano and saxophone where the saxophone is playing for a really long time it's like a really really long time and all the notes are really really low and really soft and it's really physically ta- it's like the most physically taxing thing you can do on the saxophone and it's like a it's like serious impactful experience like if i was ever going to pass out from playing a piece it would be that <laughs> oof that's that's cool it's awesome i think it's a great piece. what like what i was trying to do in that stuff is like well maybe only in retrospect but something that borders on the edge of like performance art also like not something that's like like glass is pretty strictly speaking western concert music Mm -hmm. right and like reich is concert music all that stuff like i'm hoping that my stuff is a little bit more on the border of like performance art Mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah but it can go either way it can go either way it can go either way i think i think it is it can be but it borders on it but it's again because you borrow a lot of ideas from the minimalist minimalist tradition i can't talk right now i'm fucked up uh, it doesn't matter <laughs> i mean we're talking about my fucking horseshit music anyway. no it it's, it's it's cool it's cool I, I i just wanted to ask you about it because it is really inspired by it so it definitely is that that can't be denied but you know what i i might hate the music i write but in some respect, I also kind of like it. I like that it's long and annoying and doesn't change. I mean, it's yeah. I I think that I think that's it, it has it's it has. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot to unpack. There's one piece I wrote for Nick to play, and um, he performed it at a library in Virginia, and um, the crowd was like mostly just oh yeah like friends and family. But then there were also a couple of local saxophone professors. And while he was playing my piece, the saxophone professors left. So he like took a serious professional dive playing that. But also I a little bit considered it a compliment. Well, yeah, I was gonna say, like, that's I'm I'm glad. Honestly, if he if he didn't leave, I would be concerned. I'd be like, wow, what are you teaching? Um Yeah. No, no, I'm I'm glad he I'm glad he left. Because honestly, fuck that guy. I don't whatever. Actually, that Whatever. that piece I played that piece. Um, I played that piece a few times at this point. I think. Yeah. Because I yeah. played it again uh, at when we did our recital in Pots in Canton. I mean, um, I feel like I did it another time too. I feel like I did an abbreviated version one time. At like yeah. an open mic night or something. Yeah. Because that because that's the that's um, the kind of piece you play at an open mic. Right. 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 <laughs> Oh my god. Um, okay, I really have to pee. Let's take a quick break and come back and wrap it up. All right, let's do it. That sounds cool to you. Sounds... You get one more drink. Okay, get one more drink. All right, sounds good. Okay, cool. Be right back. See ya. <laughs>
All right. What do you what what kind of sauce do you like? I like anchovy red sauce. Like one can of um, San Marzano tomatoes and two tins of anchovies. Okay. Just like a fuck ton of anchovies. Sounds good. That's my shit. That sounds really good. I fucking love anchovies. When I was in um, Wisconsin uh, visiting my Uncle Pete, we went to like their little Italy. Uh-huh. We found an Italian grocery that sold anchovy stuffed olives. Uh-huh. And we were going to make martinis with those, but we oh, ran out of time. Shit. But that, I really want that shit. That would be good. It, like, that would be really good. I'll fucking drink anything if you can put an anchovy and an olive in it. Hell yeah. Uh, hell yeah. Are we are we on? Is this the are we on the show? Nick, welcome to the James Holden show where we discuss The Expanse season 3. Spoiler alert. Season 3 was I don't know. season 3 was really good. It gets intense there at the it's end. So good. When when he's in the fucking like ah! I, Well, I don't know. Did I see this part? Did you watch the, all of season 3? You said you watched it or no? I can't remember if I finished it. If I finished, oh, okay. I won't, the, I won't say anything. The, the season finale. I, I, I won't say anything. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I thought... It's pretty bold of me to say that this is a season three expanse podcast and not know whether or not I've seen the last episode. The whole show is a spoiler for you. Oh my god! All right, I tried. Okay, listen, listen, folks. Here's some other things we tried to do today. We tried to get some other guests on. No one was available. And no one wants to talk to us. Can't blame them. We also tried to get an insect expert to come on to talk about the cicadas. Um, I could Because we both have a lot of questions and we, we both don't know very much also, about it. Also, the 17-year cicada is like the ideal minimalist bug. Ah, that's a really good point, Nick. Yeah. It's really good. I do have one pressing bit of information to add. <laughs> um, for Asa and Natasha, our two listeners, they Asa and Natasha have a really awesome dog. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay to let your dog eat a few cicadas, but not a lot because their exoskeletons are not digestible and it will act as a foreign body. So... For all you two listeners out there with a dog named Vasi, Vasya, don't let her eat too many cicadas. <laughs> Good tips. I don't know. Go, like, when you go to music school, you don't meet insect people, you know? That's true. You, you don't meet insect people. If I was going to become an insect person, I would have to, like, go back to school. I would have to go, I guess, study earth science, maybe, right? Uh, or no biology no biology maybe i don't know earth science maybe is more about like rocks and lava and shit oh yeah i guess so i don't know what Uh the fuck i'm talking about then um if you were going to go back and study insects what insect would you study oh jesus um (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well i don't know you know what i like um bees Oh, bees are good. Bees are really cool. Yeah. I kind of want to have a bee. What is it? Apiary? Mm-hmm. That sounds fun. I mean... Can you do that in your condo? Or you have to... I don't think they want you... 
think they want me doing that here. But um, maybe maybe if someday if I have like a yard that that is my own, then I'll do it. You guys have a CSA, right? Yeah, yeah. We get like fresh. Would you pay? Would you pay a like a CSA for bees where you like sponsor a hive and you get that hive's honey? Oh fuck yeah! I would to- I would totally do that. That sounds odd. Cool. Did you just come up with that now? No. Oh, I did. I didn't. Oh okay. I was gonna Someone say cut that. I was gonna say cut that shit out. <laughs> cut that shit out because so, you gotta you know that can be your thing. Okay. The people who came up with that also came up with something called CS Eggs, where you sponsor <gasps> chickens and get their eggs. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, those people are pretty cool. It's really fun. You know, um, um, I, I also want to say um, that I do this thing when I go to get my car inspected. Before before I get my car inspected, I get it cleaned and vacuumed. Like re- I, mm-hmm. I pay like top dollar for like the premium <laughs> cleaning job, so I can try to trick the mechanic into thinking. I take really good care of my car, so they always pass my inspection. That always works. Yeah, okay. If you, I believe yeah, it. Just, just in case anybody's out there who wants to know a quick tip, life hack, they call it, on the talk. Here's a, a music life hack. When I was at Crane as a student, and I was, um, I, I mean, I'm sure I did this actually when I performed with you, <laughs> but I would put the music up on the stand and then pull it really close to my face and then squint at it because I didn't have glasses back then, but I could see totally fine. But I would squint at it like I couldn't see. And so if I fucked up, like, it's not my fault. I can't see. <laughs> That's so good. That's so fucking funny. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, I could have just practiced. That's great. So the audience is like, oh, this guy, oh, he's having a hard time. He must... It, it, send him to the eye doctor, you know? The poor guy needs glasses. Yeah. He it's needs not glasses. his fault. That's why he sucks. Ah. And that's the show. <laughs> and that's the show. Wait, do we... One other composer... Wait, I'm sorry. Do we have something else to say? About minimalism? Well, I wanted to mention briefly um, William Bozinski. Do you know him? Oh, no. So he has these pieces... Um, William Bozinski. He has these pieces called Disintegration Loops. and Sounds promising. Yeah, it's really promising. And he had this idea after... Wait a second. Yeah. He... Okay, sorry. So he has this piece called Disintegration Loops where he like found all these tapes in his basement of material material he had recorded previously and he was listening back to them and realized that the tapes were disintegrating as he played them because they were so old oh so like the piece disintegration loops what you're hearing is the tape played from when he starts playing it to when it's fully disintegrated it's so goddamn that cool. That is awesome. It's really awesome. Um, oh my god! So it's like a little bit the like um, he he would be in like the maximal repetition, minimal material thing, right? 
minimal material quadrant. Especially because his material is disappearing. <laughs> Especially because the material is disappearing. <laughs> but what's so cool is that it's like, it's like the rigidity of the electronic thing that we've talked about mixed with like the human element of improvisation because right. it's unclear like what's going to disintegrate and what you're going to stop hearing or whatever. Uh... And also like... Um, he he lived in New York at the time of the 9-11 attacks and he was like watching the towers fall from his roof and this was like a like a a, a piece he like dove into as a way to like 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 work through some of the like 9-11 emotions right um there are a lot of different versions of it, like as many tapes as he had. I don't know. There's, or actually, there's disintegration loops one, two, three, and four. But inside each of those, there's like two or three different, um, different tapes. It's really, really cool wow, stuff. That's really cool. Works really great for board games, also. But also, like it has like the process thing. I really like. And the like encyclopedic, like we're gonna do this from the start until the end and do everything. Yeah. Aspect, but also like um it somehow infuses like a humanism into the technology where like there's error and there's chance and it's 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 really, really cool. Oh man. That's great. I have to check that out. Man, we need a playlist for all this good stuff. Oh yeah, that's another thing. We're gonna put um, in the Patreon. We're gonna make a playlist, and and going forward, that's probably a good idea. Yeah, that'd be cool. But we're gonna make a playlist for for all this stuff that um, Asa and Natasha can check out. <laughs> <laughs> and Pauline, if you're listening. And Pauline Oliveros. Oh no, wait, she's not listening. Oh, is she dead. She's dead. Oh, Laurie. We said Laurie was listening. Sorry, Pauline is dead. Who's Laurie? Spiegel. Oh, Laurie's. <laughs> oh, God. Um, let's see. All right. Well. Yeah. This. Um, this. You got anything to plug? Um, yeah, I'm doing a, a concert tomorrow, but you can't, holy shit, you can't, that's cool. Yeah. But you, you guys can't come because it is in person and you're not in Washington, DC. Was it, well, is it being streamed? I'm not sure. It might actually, it might be, it might be streamed. Um, I will find out it with not enough time for anybody to check it out but it's my first yeah, show guess. it's my first live performance since march 1st 2020 and that's pretty cool so that's pretty exciting e- e- whether or not anyone whether or not asa and natasha are able to check out <laughs> your show it's cool that that you're you're playing live again yeah it's pretty exciting so now for this let's get a little inside baseball mm. one of my favorite terms for our listeners who aren't musicians, um, Nick, what are you performing? Have you spent a lot of time practicing with your um, fellow performers? What's yeah. going on there? 
No. <laughs> I have not practiced in a, a while, and I've yeah. never played with. The, I'm playing. Oh, I, by the way, it's just I play the saxophone, and I'm playing with a drum. Somebody who plays drum set, and also some like homemade instruments that he set. He describes as not really being in, in any kind of key. They're all just like kind of weird, like microtonal sounds. Um, Sounds like Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but um, yeah. Th- so this guy, his name is Jason. I've collaborated with him for a year, virtually. He will send me some kind of weird electronic track, and I'll play saxophone parts over it and send them back to him, and he like mixes and produces them. Um, and some of it's pretty cool, actually. I really like a lot. His music is really awesome, and I'm really excited to play with him. But no, I have never played with him. Wait, is that before? Is that stuff posted somewhere that like people can listen to? Yes. Um, his name is Jason A. Mullinex, and he has a Bandcamp page where he produces all of his own and like re- releases all of his own albums and stuff. So I can send you a link for that. Yeah, f- f- fucking just spell Mullinex. Uh, M U L L I N A X. Oh my god, I was so wrong. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I want people to listen to your music. <laughs> you can't put up put up gates like we know how to spell Molinex. <laughs> uh yeah. Actually, I think I have it linked to if you go to nicknatalie.com. I think it's under my most recent releases. Okay, so cool. there you go. All right, that's cool. Um. Yeah, if you're listening and you like the show, which I can't imagine you are or do, you can go to patreon.com slash Gustav Baller or patreon.com slash the Gustav Baller show. I'm not sure which one it is. You can subscribe. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, some upcoming episodes, we're going to do, um, we're going to watch a bunch of movies about classical music and talk about them that'll be pretty fun i normally don't like movies about classical music but we'll see there'll probably be some good ones uh what else are we gonna do i don't know i don't know sorry this this one took so long to get out i was finishing the semester then i was just like nick's still working it's it's just a mess it's a crazy time it's all good. By the way, this is five thousand bars long, <laughs> at four four in GarageBand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're on. <laughs> <laughs> and we're in four four at one hundred and twenty beats per minute, and we are at bar five thousand. All right. Um. Any anything else you want to add, Nick? Um, Do we get to everyone? Be safe out there. Be good. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Get vaccinated. Wear a mask. Yeah. Nick, um, do you want to um, defend your anti-vaccination, anti-mask stance for our listeners? (laughs) (laughs) Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what Max just said. That none of that is true. But actually, uh, maybe I don't know. No, I wear a mask. I'm vaccinated. I still wear a mask. 
I know. Me too. Sometimes when I'm at work, I wear two masks. I'm like, I wear I wear two masks at work. That's because I'm around a lot of like, I don't know, just a lot of people at work, and it's just like nasty. So I just wear two masks. So. Yeah, but like at a certain point, it's like, oh well, I should just wear two masks around people all the time I know, because I don't know. I, I, you know, like I don't know where to draw the line. Like, I'm vaccinated. I should be safe. I, I don't know. Yeah. Fuck. I don't know what to do. It's no good answer. All we know is that the next pandemic's going to be worse. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's not funny. It's a little funny for, I just, because all you can do is laugh at a certain point. Yeah. Or be really depressed. Or you could play video games and read fantasy. <laughs> Which is what might happen this weekend. S- speaking of which, um, yeah, <laughs> Nick, do you want to go play some more Mario Kart? <laughs> we were playing Mario Kart while we uh, pre-gamed for the show. Yes. Yeah, Mario Kart. Is that a for real yes, or is that a for the show yes, mm. so people think we're friends? No, that's a for real yes, and we're not friends. Okay, cool. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go play Mario Kart. Okay, that was awesome. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Gustav Baller Show. We're going to go play Mario Kart. Peace!